Hi there guys and welcome to today's live stream. We're going to be talking about the concept of is pelvic tilt confusing your back pain rehab? And today we're going to go through all about pelvic tilt and how you can use, how you can understand it better to make sure that it's not interfering with your lower back pain rehab and your core engagement. So hopefully you guys will find this super, super helpful. As always, if you're new to the channel, please do consider subscribing if you do find these videos helpful uh, for you. And if you know someone else with back pain, we always do Q&A at the end of these live streams. So feel free to share this with anyone that might benefit from that Q&A at the end of our live streams. And with that being said, let's get into today's live stream. Okay, guys, um, we're going to be talking about uh, sort of this this concept of pelvic tilt today. I've got on the screen here, um, we've obviously got all the, the bits and pieces that we're going to be covering. We're going to be covering in, in length sort of what is actual pelvic tilt, um, what does it do, why is it a sort of a, a confusing or confounding factor when it comes to dealing with your lower back pain and particularly with some of the simple core engagement exercises. And this is partially uh, because of the way in which it's been taught. And, and, and spoken about uh, by other professionals, et cetera. Um, so we're just gonna kind of break that down. Um, what should you be focusing on? And, and really that neutral spine being a pivotal core concept here, uh, neutral for you for the time being. So uh, we'll get straight into it. And as always, Lara's the other side of the camera. So if you guys have any questions as we're going through this, you wanna get your questions in for the Q&A at the end, then please do add those in now. Now I thought I'd start this out by using the spine to just demonstrate um, most people that start talking about pelvic tilt, and we, we, we see this in our, in our back in shape members area where people say, oh, well, I've got a pelvic tilt. Do I do this? Do I do that? Etc. Um, I want to help you guys understand how it's commonly going to be diagnosed if someone's done it in a more detailed way. Um, it's still not very good in, in, in our eyes, and I'll explain why a little bit later on, but assuming it's been done the best possible way, how they uh, establish your pelvic tilt. And what they do is they generally get the bony point in the back of your spine. We refer to these two bony bits where the dimples are. So this is the PSIS and then we've got the ASIS. I won't uh, break down the abbreviations for you, but basically they're the bony bits on the front and on the back of your sort of hip region. And these two areas, essentially they draw a line and measure it to the horizontal. And that's how they establish your pelvic tilt. Now, why? Is this done? It's done because it is assumed that as this rotates forwards, it's going to increase the curve with an anterior pelvic tilt. And as it goes backwards, it's going to reduce the curve, i.e. a posterior pelvic tuck. And you can see what happens to the lumbar spine in both of those cases. It flattens with a posterior and it curves more with an anterior. Now, the big issue and what, what they're assuming, sorry, when they make those measurements um, assuming they've done those measurements, sometimes it'll just be rubbing the hand along the back and saying, oh, it feels a bit deep here. So very, very accurate. Um, I think not. Uh, now, what they're assuming when they do these measurements is that those two points, those two little red dots that I had on the model there on the spine is referring to this angle. And this is the angle of the sacrum, which in our model is the orange bone. And it's the angle that your whole lumbar spine sits on. And they're assuming that by establishing the angle or the, the position of that, what's called the innominate, they're able to infer the position of the sacrum, assuming that's the way down. Now, the big pitfall of this is that when you start doing x-ray evaluations and you start to see how the sacrum, which is the triangle bone at the base of the spine, can sit inside that pelvic ring in different ways, you start to realize that it's actually not that accurate, let alone the fact that the actual measuring of that with eyeballing it and pressing on the bony bit is, is notoriously inaccurate. 
compared to say doing x-ray evaluation so that's the first thing in the best case scenario measure, measuring this uh, physically rather than with imaging you're really going to get a confusing output in terms of the results the second thing is if we're not doing that detailed analysis or maybe we are we have different shapes of the sacrum here uh, and, and, and if we're looking at the way in which the curve looks from the surface if we have different shapes of the sacrum we can find that sometimes but say this one perhaps which actually in, in my experience is more associated with a reduced lumbar curve because the sacrum goes backwards straight it's a very straight sacrum may often reveal or make it look as though that person has a deeper curve because then the, the soft tissue around their glutes etc sticks out a bit more whereas this position which is actually more commonly associated with an increased lumbar curve may look like the bum is a little bit flatter and therefore a reduced lumbar curve so this can be very confusing um, in terms of you look at the spine from a physical standpoint and then you look at the x-rays and you see there's just so much disconnect there so much room for inaccuracies and the reason this is relevant is because patients then take those things on board thinking that they're gospel my practitioner my xyz said that i have osteopelvic tilt or anteropelvic tilt and then they try and take actions with that in mind which are the correct actions for that problem but that may not be the correct action for that person because the diagnosis of some form of pelvic tilt forwards or backwards is is highly likely to be incorrect and in my experience it's it's 50 50 as to whether the patient comes in saying they've got anterior pelvic tilt when we do the imaging whether or not they actually have that now we look directly at the sacrum in particular which is really the most important part and when you have an increased curve what we get and i've drawn them out on the board here so we get an increased shearing of the l5s1 so this creates the, it almost like the uh, the vertebral is going to slide off a very steep slope and that creates shear discs really do not like too much shear at all shear is something that the spine in general doesn't particularly do well with and those sorts of cases we start to get things like spondylolisthesis and other issues or that they're a little bit more common in those cases the second one is the posterior pelvic tuck and we've already spoken about what the uh, implications in the spine are going to be here but this one creates excessive compression through the lumbar spine not to mention it stretches all of the ligaments so understanding the implications of these two diagnoses too much and too little um, pelvic tilt does lead you to understand the spine better and what kind of stress and strain your spine will be under but in essence it makes weight bearing and load bearing less effective now if you're worrying about all these different things and you're trying to fix your back you're going to get tied in knots literally trying to, to accommodate these different alignment issues and this is what really um, does throw up a quite a lot of sort of barriers and confusion for patients when they're going through the rehab process and I think fundamentally it's wrong because you don't really know exactly what's going on you don't have a full understanding uh, specifically with numbers with regards to what your pelvic tilt is and therefore trying to, to, to get upset and trying to make changes with by incorporating pelvic tilt into your rehab process is really quite unnecessary unless it's actually been measured effectively and when we're measuring it in clinic we're looking at a 40 degree curve that we a 40 degree slope that we should have and it might be that you're 25 degrees it might be that you're 20 degrees it might be that you're 45 degrees and those things can be measured and then we can clearly create a pathway to do that to do the rehab necessary to change those and then remeasure it accurately with that standing imaging it's also important to bear in mind that these positions will change whether you're standing or lying down of course and this relates into as we mentioned in our sacroiliac joint um, 
live stream. This also has implications on the sacroiliac joint, either it being too compressed or too mobile. So something else worth considering on, uh, worth considering. Now, the, the main thing we want to do with this particular live stream is make it as helpful as possible. And I, hopefully by this point, you're kind of starting to see there's a lot of factors that go into whether or not we have anterior or posterior pelvic tilt. And for you watching this, trying to deal with your back pain, and if you've been going in circles with regards to pelvic tilt, or you found I just can't engage because I've got a pelvic tilt, disregard that. Disregard the diagnosis of your pelvic tilt unless it's been properly formally diagnosed with imaging and focus more on keeping a neutral spine because your core muscles are there to provide stability to this region. And whether or not you have an increased or decreased pelvic tilt, you should not, when you're doing the core exercises that we recommend, you should not be moving your spine in order to engage those core muscles. The point of, the, of our rehab is that you're not doing, as is commonly done in things like yoga or pilates, you're not doing a posterior pelvic tuck to then engage the core when you're lying on your back because you can see what that does. It makes this like a straight rod rather than a nice smooth curve. So we're not doing pelvic tucks. We're not sticking our bum out excessively either. We're focusing on simply having a still spine and engaging the core around there to provide effective stability to that section and that is really the crux of the matter here if you've got pelvic tilt or you've been diagnosed with pelvic tilt from a physical examination focus more on actually just engaging that spine engaging those muscles around the spine to provide it with stability and protection and that way you'll have an awful lot more success in your back pain rehabilitation journey and this is really one of the fundamental principles that starts people off in the phase one of our back in shape membership it's something that then permeates the whole of those phase one two and three protocols to make sure that you're effectively holding your spine in the right position uh, or in a stable position for you and if there are some nuanced differences maybe you do have anterior or posterior pelvic tilt and you want to get those checked out in the future that's perfectly fine you can get some proper examination done but there's no point making a rehab plan based on false or highly inaccurate initial assumptions it's only going to serve to confuse you and it doesn't matter whether you've got anterior or posterior pelvic tilt, you still need to develop stability. And if we've got other factors such as degenerative change, any more severe issues such as spondylolisthesis or stenosis, those sorts of issues, it doesn't matter. You may not even be able to change those, but you will benefit 100% from learning to re-engage your core more effectively without needing to move your spine. And that is the main takeaway I want you guys to take from today's live stream. So with that being done, we can go into Q&A if you've got any questions. Um, just a quick question, in terms of, in your experience, which one is more common, anterior or posterior? Um, we see, obviously, the majority of the patients that come into the clinic have either have back pain, and then the second largest group is people with neck pain uh, in the clinic, and the most common um, finding that we see with patients with chronic and, and sort of medium to long-term lower back pain is a reduced curve, and that is going to accompany posterior pelvic tilt. Uh, in, in, in my experience, it's substantially more frequent than the anterior variation. Um, so it's more, but, but if you go online, you're going to see a disproportionate amount of information on anterior pelvic tilt because everyone supposedly has anterior pelvic tilt. And it's only, you know, in our experience, seeing the thousands of patients with lower back pain with imaging that you actually realize that that's not the case. If you think about it, this every time you're sat down, you have posterior pelvic tilt. We do spinal remodeling in the clinic, which is where we change the alignment of people's spines objectively and then look at it on, on an x-ray to reevaluate and measure these things properly. All the x-rays that we do, it, we do uh, through our clinic, we do at a third-party clinic. 
um, that we have a, a relationship with. So we don't influence any of the actual imaging process. It's not like I'm there saying, okay, let's change the position here. All of our x-rays are done offsite uh, in a, and it's a process that we have no interference with. So it's extremely accurate. And like other places where people will criticize, say, oh, I went in and saw the practitioner and he put me in a funny position at the start and he put me in a funny position at the end. And, and you know, always oh, it really is accurate. Our x-rays are done by qualified radiologists outside of our clinic and we have nothing to do with that process other than the changing process. It works, it changes people's alignment. And the, thing, the reason I'm mentioning that is because most of you guys watching this with back pain are going to be spending extended periods of time or have done over the years sat down. And when we sit down for long periods, we posteriorly pelvic tuck to sit on the sitting bones or sometimes further back. And that creates instability in these ligaments that protect the normal lumbar curve. It eliminates that lumbar curve and over time that position becomes the norm which i think is why although i don't have any data that i can say it suggests to you to prove this just my experience but that is why i think most of the people that come in have a reduced curve and however most of them equally are coming in saying i've been told my bum sticks out too much or something to that effect and i need to do a posterior pelvic tuck and it's wrong and it's making people worse okay I'm just going to jump over to YouTube. Georgina has asked us a question. Um, she said, I'm confused. I was told to engage my core to help my back. So is this what you are showing us no longer? Or should I continue with walking and keeping my core engaged? So Georgina, I, I definitely suggest you get on to the phase one stuff uh, and look at that core engagement exercise. That is what you need to do. Now we're talking about pelvic tilt. It's the way in which you uh, actually engage that core that is the issue here. A lot of people get taught to tuck to engage. Tucking has nothing to do with engaging. You should be able to engage without tucking. You should feel like you're wearing a corset and someone's just pulled the strings behind you and everything's come tight. That has nothing to do with spinal movement. So you really need to focus on engaging your core independently of any sorts of tucks, forwards, backwards, sideways, whichever, and learning to engage that core and that's really, really important. And we talk about this in the phase one back in shape membership. We also talk about it in phase two and the phase three as well. But that's really, really important. And then that, pos that position is transitioned into standing upright activities, walking, lifting, uh, you know, boiling the kettle and, and keeping that core engagement effective throughout those activities of daily living. Yeah. So that's, that's really the message here. And we've done the video all about properly engage your core yes. whilst continuing to breathe. <laughs> yes, yes. I think we did do that the other the other week or so. Um, one of the things, we teach you how to do it with breath. So you learn how to, what it feels like in, with the easiest, kind of the easiest way to feel it. And then once you've managed to know what it actually feels like mentally and physically, then you start to remove the breath and just learn to do it using the muscles. And if I just demonstrate quickly, so essentially, something comes out and in. And we can do this by using the core muscles, okay? You see my stomach moving out and in, that's nothing to do with my breath. That's just exhibiting, completely relaxing the core or uh, completely engaging the core. And that's what we want you guys to build up to. It takes a little bit of time. You have to remember I'm demonstrating this all the time with patients in the clinic and quite frequently with you guys on these live streams and the virtual consultations that we do. So um, I'm very, very used to doing it. You may not be. You may not be able to do that without breathing in some peculiar way. And sometimes people try and do it and they go blue. You know, they, they really, really struggle. If you really struggle to do that, that's a really good sign in many respects because it means you really don't know how to engage your core. And if you've had long-term back pain and you can't even engage your core like that, 
then you have a real issue, but you also have real room for improvement. And that is the really important thing. A lot of people, they just get so despondent and so, um, you know, in a hole because nothing seems to work. And then you look at something as simple as learning to engage your deep core muscles and you can't even do it. And that is fantastic because it means that actually there's something that you can really work on. You're 100% in control of that and you can build it. And if you can build it, you can fix it. If you can fix it, you can be in less pain. Um, I'm just going to continue with Georgina. She just said, yep. thank you, that was very helpful. I have emphysema, so that exercise will not affect, uh, affect this. No, 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 it won't at all. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Now, I'm just going to jump over to Facebook now. Karen has asked, would you need to stretch more if you have a pelvic tilt? It seems like it would uh, pull on your muscles a lot. Um, so the, the, the definition of the pelvic tilt is if it's posterior, it's going to pull on certain muscles and if it's anterior, it's going to pull on others. And, and, and the, con, the, the opposing muscle in that scenario will therefore be stretched excessively. But I think for, for the best process for most of you guys, unless you're getting proper examination done, um, which is what we do, um, and you can probably get it arranged um, local to you if you're watching this in another country, um, don't worry about that for the time being. Focus on being symmetrical with your stretching. As you see in our back and shape phase one, it's symmetrical stretching. It's stretching the flexors, it's stretching the extensors equally and just working on being symmetrical through there, improve general mobility. And if at some point you want to get proper examination done and drill down even further, then you can do that. But there is absolutely no reason whether or not you've got anterior or posterior pelvic tilt not to work on these things in a symmetrical fashion for the time being. Because the last thing you want to do is go through with an inferior examination process and then start stretching things disproportionately and you make things worse. So be very mindful of that because it will happen if you don't get a proper... If you, if you, if you don't know where the starting point is, you don't know where you're going. And if you start on a car journey in that fashion, you're going to be driving around in circles for a long period of time. So don't do it with your own body. Okay, Kate has asked, how long should you be able to hold the core engagement? Uh uh and go on to the next exercise and realizing core engagement has gone or should we continuously repeat before every exercise uh so i'm going to assume that you're in sort of the phase one or phase two of our back in shape uh there um you should really be able to engage it the whole way through i mean you can turn it off for a moment um that's fine uh you know while you're say catching your breath or something like that because some people do find it quite exhausting to engage these muscles for extended periods but that's only because you're not used to it with time, you'll get, it'll, it'll become easier and you'll have this passive engagement. What we're looking for you to do on the rehab side of things is engage it at kind of 90 to 75 percent. And the hope is there that then on normal day to day living or between exercises, it drops down to, say, 75 to 50 percent. But it's still engaged rather than being completely switched off and it's slowly building up that practice. It, sh it should be something that you can hold the whole time. You know, even while you're talking, like while I'm doing this, you can keep that core engaged the whole way through this live stream. There's yeah. no issues there. It's just something that you need to build up practice with. And if at the moment you're still transitioning off using that breath to help you understand how to engage your core, then you will find that you're going to be limited with how long you can hold it. But once you start to get the contraction uh, correct, get that feeling correct, and get the resilience and endurance of that muscle working, you're going to be doing very, very well. Always use a percentage improvement because it really helps you set your expectations correctly. Um, in the early days, you're going to get quite a large engagement. If you could only hold it for three seconds to start with, for example, then if you hold it for six seconds, that's 100% improvement. If you then, you, you've got a number of 100% improvements until you get to hold it for a minute. So that's really, really powerful to be able to make such compounding growth and compounding improvement in a very short period of time. And sometimes people lose sight of that. 
But then once you're able to hold it for a minute, can you hold it for two minutes? And then that's a much longer gap to, with a 100% improvement. But slowly you will be able to get better and better at doing this. Yeah, Kia's just said, um, but are you consciously doing it or will your body automatically do it? So you are consciously doing it to start with. You're consciously engaging it at like 90%, 75%. Over time, the passive tone of that muscle improves. So it does become a bit more of a subconscious process. So there's that natural uh, sort of le less, you're, not, you're less aware for example, the same as your posture. People, people who work hard mentally on their posture to stay upright after a period of time, and it is a, an extended period of time, that posture becomes effortless and it's just the way you stand. So in answer to that question, it takes a long period of time, especially if you can't even hold it for a minute or you started not even being able to hold it for a minute for that process to become passive and natural, effortless and subconscious. Yeah. But it will, you will get there. Um, I definitely think I think that answered it better. <laughs> that yeah, second answer. It's definitely one of those things that is harder than you think it should be. Yeah, but if you've gone for 20 to 30 years yeah. or 10 years or even 5 years not doing this, you know, it, it takes a long time to actually make that serious change. And you do need to actually actively think about doing it yeah. in the, in, in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, you wouldn't take up a new skill after never doing it before, not doing it in years and expect to be good at it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. These things do take time, especially when it comes to something that's passive and there in an effortless manner. Yeah. It is possible for everybody though. It just takes time. Okay, awesome. Cheryl, I'm going to come back to your question uh, just about the beds in one second. Uh, Gina has just said, uh, uh, she said, is it good to engage the core whilst walking? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, so with regards to your core muscles, we're teaching you this uh, in, in the Back in Shape membership site. Um, you keep it engaged. In the, in the early stages in phase one, you might find this a bit more difficult. But once you're in phase two, if you're boiling the kettle, if you're going for a walk, if you're going up the stairs, if you're getting in and out of chairs, you are engaging your core. And it will be a bit of a pain. It'll be a bit of a mental pain constantly having to do it. But you will get better. And that kind of leads into Kate's question earlier. It will become something that's autonomous. But for many people, it's just such a change uh, getting those core muscles working that it, you know, you look at, look at for example, a tennis player. You know, those professional tennis players, they're, they're doing those forearm serving, uh, forearm uh, returns effortlessly. It's, it's just done so many thousand times that they can just do those things effortlessly and it looks ridiculous. But when they started, it would have been a lot of effort. And if I pick up a tennis racket, God knows what would happen. But it'd be going all over the shop and I have to really, really focus on doing that. And it takes so long for it to become autonomous, natural, fluid. And, and really just an effortless process. Sure. And just uh, whilst we've got Gina here, I think it was the phase two twice a day. Um, yeah, just, just taking a, uh, yeah, I wanted to touch on this on today's live, just a slight tangent. This is talking about moving on with your rehab. So you say you've, you're, you're actually doing well with your core engagement. You're not making those pelvic tilts. You've avoided that error. And you're moving into sort of phase two and phase three. Those routines really need to be done once a day in the middle of the day. And we've spoken before about doing phase one either side of that, so morning and afternoon. But that phase two routine is there to achieve overload in the muscles. So if you're finding that three sets of 10 is too easy, we've got those clear progressions in one of the videos. So go in, if you haven't seen these, go in and check them out right now uh, inside backinshapeapp.com or on, in the Facebook group. And actually watch those vi videos now because there's that clear progression. We want to be doing once a day. And if we can do, if we can do the three sets of 10, we want to consider doing the five sets of 10. And if we can do the five sets of 10, we want to consider the 15 sets of 10. And if we're doing that in phase two, we really want to, and, and doing it effortlessly with good time, then we definitely want to consider moving up to phase three uh, with the bands. So um, 
always focus when we're talking about these uh, the phase one exercises those are relief and we want to do them regularly during the day but the phase two we need to achieve overload in a finite period of time so it's no good sometimes people will make the mistake of doing one set three times a day you're not going to achieve overload there so we need to do it all in one sitting to actually allow those muscles to be overloaded slightly so we get the adaptive change coming through and we build uh, build and, and, and strengthen everything Okay, awesome. And now just Cheryl's question. She said, I missed yesterday's video. What's your thoughts on adjustable beds? Um, if by adjustable beds you mean where the top end comes up slightly, um, I don't really have too much of sort of an opinion on that per se, but I would say um, generally those sorts of things might be used if you have uh, sleep apnea or those sorts of things because it, it props you up in a certain position. Um, if that's necessary for a pre-existing medical condition or something separate, then that's something you have to use. But the process of being completely flat is definitely a good thing for the human body. It takes load off the spine. It also doesn't, it prevents pooling in the lower part of your body. Uh, other people that might might struggle with that and need those sort of adjustable semi-recumbent beds might be those with um, acid reflux and those sorts of things or a diaphragmatic hernia. Um, because as you're flat, the, the reflux comes up and that's not very nice. Um, so those things are unavoidable, but assuming you don't have any, any uh, pre-existing health conditions and you're generally a healthy person just with back pain, um, then I would try and avoid any sort of uh, semi-recumbent positions to sleep in. It's not as good for you, in my yes. experience. Yeah, you're sat, and and and, and yeah, and you, yeah, yeah, you, you're kind of almost in that sitting position. You're going to tighten things up in an, an unfavorable way, uh, and I'd say that's not necessarily going to be so great. Unless you need to get out of bed, as in to adjust it up and then get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those sorts of things. If if the whole bed kind of goes bump up or bump down to help you get out of bed more effortlessly, then 100% those things would be perfectly sensible. But the semi-recumbent nature of those. Um, I, I would, unless you need it for another health condition, I would really try and avoid those personally. Okay, brilliant. I think that's everything today. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys found today's live stream helpful. I hope you found it interesting. If you do, if you are new to the channel, again, one more time, if you uh, if you find this content useful, then please do consider subscribing to the channel, uh, hitting the notification bell so you go, know when we're going live. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday this week, we're going to be going live at 8.45 a.m. That's UK time. So if you want to sort of set a little reminder there, you can do. We're going to be talking about some interesting topics. They're already posted in the Back in Shape uh, members area on Facebook. Facebook. Um, so if you want to take advantage, get advanced note of those, then please do. Uh, but with that being said, hope you guys have a great afternoon and we will see you tomorrow with another live stream.